Hey everyone, welcome to the JavaScript Jobber podcast. I'm Chris Ferdinandi, the Vanilla JS guy. I'm here with Amy Knight, who is on mute. Uh, hello from Nashville. Sorry, multitasking. Done now. <laughs> no worries. Aaron Frost. Hello. The wonderful AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live from snowy Salt Lake. Awesome. And our guest this week, Keith Circle from GitHub. Hello, everyone. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash jsjabber. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Awesome. So I invited uh, Keith on this show today to talk about um, some of the recent changes GitHub has made to their site. They've made a move recently to remove some of their dependencies like jQuery from the site and really kind of invest heavily in some native APIs and things like web components. And I thought that would make a really interesting story for our listeners this week. Um, so Keith, do you mind just talking a little bit about the project you worked on and kind of how it came to be and why it happened and just you know kind of the background for folks who hadn't heard about it before just now. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So I work on uh, web systems at GitHub, which is kind of like design systems, but with more JavaScript. So we, we kind of manage the JavaScript for .com. Part of that is making sure that our application engineers can work with the, the stack comfortably. So making sure that we've got all of the tooling there, making sure that we've got all the libraries that they need to be productive. Um, but a big part of that is also refactoring tech debt and also keeping an eye out for kind of uh, the landscape of JavaScript and trying to make sure that we're writing idiomatic JavaScript the entire time. So a big part of that recently that, has been kind that's of That's a big loaded word there to say idiomatic. <laughs> that's, that's making a lot of assumptions. I want to hear what you mean by that. Idiomatic as in writing JavaScript that isn't, I mean, so like JavaScript comes in, in hundreds of different flavors. So you could say idiomatic JavaScript is maybe vanilla JavaScript, or, or uh, you know, it's we don't want to write wild code. Uh, one of our um, one of our mottos in the web systems team is uh, write JavaScript like it's two thousand five. I cannot tell you how much I love that phrase, Keith. I know you and I interact a fair bit on Twitter, so that probably doesn't doesn't surprise you. But I've been talking about being a developer dinosaur for a little while now, and uh, that hits me like right in the feels. That's such a great. <laughs> Great phrase. So yeah. what um what really drove this way? I guess for me, there's two things I'd love to learn a little bit more about. The first being why you as a team decided to move away from jQuery. And then perhaps more um more to the to the point of things, like why did you not replace that with like a modern framework? It seems like everybody these days is jumping on either like React or Vue or the two big ones right now. And why didn't GitHub move to one of those instead of trying to use what the browser just kind of natively provides. Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, for removing jQuery, so, so I mean, you have to think that 
GitHub started in 2007 and we kind of started using jQuery around then because it was kind of the only way to really write JavaScript, I guess. There was a lot of browser quirks back then. There were things like, you know, query selector all didn't exist. There was not an easy way to add or remove classes from a class name because it was just an attribute that you would change. So you had to do string manipulation to just uh, add or remove a class. Class name plus regex. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it was just kind of a terrible landscape to really do sensible, testable, clean code without jQuery. jQuery kind of eased a lot of those pains. So we were kind of using it because everyone was, because it was easy to use, because it made our code better. To, to removing it, you know, when it came the time to remove it, it was just a case of, well, that doesn't really hold true anymore. It doesn't make our code better because all of the operations that we use jQuery for have native equivalents. We now have query selector. Uh, we have class lists, so we can add and remove classes, you know, using uh, um, just a, a small set of functions. They're all baked into the browser. They're all pretty much quirks-free. There's very few bugs, cross-browser bugs to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, so it didn't really make sense to keep shipping this 25 kilobytes of JavaScript that really didn't offer us much. The counter-argument here is um, whenever I mention that sort of thing, I usually get a lot of push pushback around, well, that's what modern frameworks do for us today. You know, React helps smooth out some of these kind of quirks or make some of the things that are harder to do easier, lets us work faster, yada, yada. So um, why didn't you as a team pick a, pick a framework? Why did you kind of, I think I read that you guys really leaned heavily on things like web components. So what, what drove yeah. that decision-making? So, I mean, a, a lot of this has to do with history, um, but also a lot of it has to do with the trade-offs. I guess you could say that something like React is like an abstraction layer over the top of the browser. It offers a lot for a certain type of application that's probably not what GitHub is. The way people interact with GitHub is, is kind of a read-only experience for a lot of the time. You're spending a lot of time reading code. You're spending a lot of time quickly navigating between pages. But even when you land on a page, like I don't know the exact figures, but personally, for example, I, I probably spend about 90% of the time reading stuff on GitHub rather than actually interacting with things. So to, to have something like React where it's, you know, it, it kind of, the main benefit that you're going to get from React is, is heavily interactive apps, uh, or at least that's the way I see it. Um, that doesn't really hold true for GitHub. We have some interaction, uh, mostly it's, it's forms. We can get 90% of the way towards looking and feeling like a, a progressive web app or a, you know, an, a fully interactive web app by just making all of our forms Ajax. We don't really need to do super advanced DOM manipulation or, you know, uh, reconciling huge trees of DOM that, that React and, and those kind of frameworks are useful for. We kind of just, as I say, I mean, I think the most complex elements are, are maybe the text area where we have Markdown and an emoji picker and things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how important is it for GitHub, the SEO piece of GitHub rendering, like, and did that factor into the decision to stay framework light? Yeah, so I mean, we, we actually have a full read-only experience. Uh, you can disable JavaScript and you can do most things uh, with GitHub. I think the only thing right now that you can't do is uh, merge pull requests. and But even things like commenting, starring and unstarring repositories, I think even forking a repository, you can do without JavaScript. We've done this for several reasons. One is that it allows us to quickly drop 
older browsers that we don't really have the manpower to support. We've recently dropped IE 11 just because the metrics of it are quite low. Um, you know, there's not that many people using IE 11 now, but it's also quite a burden to maintain. So we can just not serve JavaScript to IE 11 users and they will get the full read-only experience. The SEO part plays a big part of that because, you know, obviously GitHub appears on most searches that you see uh, yeah. when you when you look for a project. That's kind of helped, I guess, by various other network effects. But yeah, I think SEO is a, a big part of it. But I think the, the real big part is it really just comes down to our users. Um, we want to make sure that we give the best experience to our users. Where we can, we'll offer JavaScript on top. And where we, where we can, we'll offer a great read-only experience instead. So do you guys have like deferential serving going on where if they have a browser user agent that is capable of JavaScript, you serve one package, and if they don't, you serve another? Is that how it works, or what's going on? Yeah, it's quite lightweight, but we do. We have, uh, we have a Compact JS. Um, so if you're, if you're in an older browser, we'll serve uh, Compact JS. If you're in a very old browser, we just won't serve you any JS. Hmm. And the reason for that is that often, if we serve JS and it breaks, then it will break more of the page than if we just don't serve JS at all. Mm. So, so if you're browsing in IE 11, you won't get any JavaScript served to you. Mm. Um, if you're browsing in like Chrome 50, then you'll get Compact JS uh, served. And if you're browsing in the latest browser, then you won't get that. And so that can that can drop quite a bit of dead weight. So it's predominantly polyfills. So it would be things like there's a bunch of new mutation methods on the DOM on elements. So you can do like prepend and append and things. Mm. We use that quite a lot. So that's in Compact JS. Hmm. Um, so we serve that up just for browsers that don't have it, but the majority of new browsers have it. So uh, it's, it's little point to serve it up. It's just wasted bytes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. I'm actually, I'm, I'm curious because I, you mentioned, you know, like IE 11 is a little bit difficult to work with and that's, that's maybe been the opposite of my experience. So I'm just, I, I guess I'm a little curious what you, um, what you mean by that or like in what way, especially if you guys are kind of serving up, polyfills for things like so where are the where are the pain points there for your team specifically so for one on the testing side of things it's getting more difficult to test ie11 it doesn't really ship i think it ships with windows 7 right but it doesn't ship with like windows 10 you only get edge or something mm-hmm. that's fair um, the, the other thing is uh so if you get the main bundle on, on github.com the main javascript bundle uses things like async functions it uses classes, it uses arrow functions. So it's using all the latest ES6 syntax. We can't serve that up. This is a recent change. We, we've had to use Babel to transpile things like async functions. And if you try and use Babel to transpile async functions, you bring down this whole like regenerator runtime, which is quite a large payload. Um, mm. And async functions run quite a bit slower, I believe, in Babel with the regenerator runtime. So we can benefit the majority of our users by shipping something like async functions, the native syntax. And then, you know, just, just by dropping IE11, we're able to do that because almost every other browser has compatibility for that. Right, right. Okay. So if, um, if I'm understanding correctly, it's not necessarily that like, like you can still visit GitHub in IE11, right? You're just getting a, a more bare bones experience because you guys are yeah, building yeah. on layers. Yeah, you'll get a little uh, flash notification saying hey, you know, this browser isn't supported. We recommend upgrading to the latest browser. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everything will kind of work. We do a lot of uh, Ajax stuff. So in IE11, where you're not served JavaScript, you'll just do full page reloads. So for example, if you click the watch button, that's just a form and the watch 
button itself is a button to submit that form, right? So then you just go and hit the the route that redirects you back to the page with the watch button ticked. So it's a full page refresh just to click that button. But what we can do with JavaScript on is just use Ajax to to serve up the form and change that over. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't really need something like React for that. You, you know, that's a that's maybe ten lines of JavaScript. No, it makes me really, really happy though to hear that you're um, you're kind of using this progressively enhanced type experience where even if I'm on a like quote unquote unsupported browser, it's not like I get nothing or can't, can't do anything with the app. So that's um, absolutely yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you could probably fire up IE6 and it would still work with GitHub. I can't imagine it would look great because you know our CSS has moved on a bit from then as well. But but yeah, we we fully intend to do as much progressive enhancement as we can. Um, and, and that's kind of also, there's there's a scale part about that as well, right? We have a lot of users and we also have a lot of developer users and developers tend to pick strange browsers to run, you know? Yeah. Uh, we have developers running Pale Moon, Waterfox, Ice Weasel. Are these uh, all these Linux Linux distros that have different browsers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They each come with their own quirks you know then they're not all running the latest can i just put a noun and an adjective together and that's like a that's a linux browser name yeah, yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> either a linux browser like, name or a flavor of pot right like cheesy boulder and like that's a, that's a linux browser right <laughs> yeah. you can yeah. imagine you drive yourself nuts trying to figure out how to like actually support all of these different flavors of stuff oh. if you weren't using kind of a progressively enhanced approach though like Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, madness. we we shipped native class syntax just to kind of test the waters a little bit. Um, and we got users reporting back to us, oh, my browser is not working anymore. And it's because they were running some esoteric Firefox variant that doesn't support native class syntax, but the main Firefox does. So we just have to kind of work around those issues. There's a lot of other, to, uh, to Keith's point, some of my favorite things in the browser right now are Flexbox. CSS grid and CSS variables, none of those fully supported. Some of them not even slightly supported in IE11, others not fully supported. So, I mean, there's a point where when you're talking about such a small percentage, like I'm imagining GitHub's IE11 usage is probably lower than average sites. It's, it's, I think it starts to make sense. So I, I think I'm, I, I can see kind of what you guys are doing there. Is Flexbox still not fully supported in IE11? I thought it was, but Grid wasn't. Well, they're both they're both partially supported, but they okay. both have holdout like functionality, so you can't go all in on them. <laughs> but straight up CSS variables, which I love, they're not. That's literally the only reason I still use SAS is just for variables. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I created a project so that I can use CSS variables in IE11 with Angular. So I've, I've kind of gotten my way around it. But yeah, it is, it is not a cool thing to have to deal with, like writing legacy code, even though, uh, especially when you know such a small portion of your users are using IA11. Yeah. It makes more sense to have a, a, no, a no JavaScript fallback and move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the thing with, so with things like CSS variables, which is the same kind of thing with the JavaScript class syntax or async functions, is you, know, you can try and get it to work and maybe you have some server-side tooling that can compile down these things. Maybe you've got some kind of like runtime cost. There's always going to be some kind of cost in doing that. And sometimes 
you know, you're going to hit diminishing returns eventually. If you're spending, you know, two hours a day trying to maintain your CSS variable compiler that's going to serve CSS to maybe like 2% of your user base, you have to wonder if that is worth doing. You know, it's it's all about trade-offs. Um, we are quite fortunate that because we have such a strong stance around progressive enhancement that we can kind of more quickly move away from these things. Yeah. You know, honestly, Aaron, even the thing you were talking about with like Flexbox and Grid, I don't know how GitHub does this, but I usually treat layout as a progressive enhancement. So I'm totally cool with older browsers getting just like a single column layout and then something more visually appealing if you have a modern browser that can support it. Oh yeah, I agree. Yeah. I 100% agree. And like in my scenario where I I have a fallback that only runs in IE11 for CSS mm-hmm. bars, it actually takes the CSS scrolls through it, finds the variables and replaces them in line. Oh, how cool. Which has a cost, but mm-hmm. if you're at IE11, you're probably used to a bad internet experience anyway. So mm-hmm. I'm fine with you paying that cost, like personally. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And then everyone else just has this costless experience on the website. So, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My real cutoff is I, I want to make sure people can access the content. And if that means it looks uglier for certain people, like that's that's okay. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we we want to enable users you know there's there's a huge cohort of of users that just want access to things like source code that can really kind of enable the next generation of developers sometimes you know in developing countries where they don't have great internet access or maybe they they have restrictions on the types of browsers that they can use which is a you know a thing that some countries have we don't want to prevent them from contributing to the open source movement GitHub wants to make sure that they can enable every developer to develop. And so one of the ways that we can do that is to make sure that anyone can read the website. And, and that means progressive enhancement. So switching gears just a little bit, Keith, you talked a little bit about how a lot of the stuff that we used to like rely heavily on jQuery for, we now have some really nice native equivalents for. And when I evangelize this stuff, I'm always talking about how easy, oh, this stuff used to be so hard, this stuff is really easy. One of the things I usually shy away from that given the kind of the size of GitHub might be interesting to talk about, is there any stuff that you encountered when you were doing the redesign or the refactor that was challenging to do with native code? Like what were some of the, like the tougher things or the sticking points for, for your team that you guys had to really work around? Yeah, sure. Up until recently, there was like very few useful options for things like event listeners. So one of the big parts with event listeners is that they they have a performance hit. And so if you add like a scroll event listener, that can really drag on the performance. Up until recently, there isn't a way to kind of add a event listener and kind of try and retain some of that performance. Recently, there's been this passive event listener that you can add. Uh, So you can add an option to, to your event listener to do a passive event listener, which doesn't mutate. There's a stricter set of guarantees with it. Similarly, there's like, there's no way to add an event listener once and just have it fire once. Uh, that's been recently added, though. So we, we've been using library functions for those, but then we can start to switch those out. It's, it's various little bits like that. There's nothing huge that stands in the way. Probably the biggest thing is delegated events. There's no super performant way to do delegated events. So we have an open source library called delegated events. How big uh, is which it? We <laughs> How big is it? Uh, a couple of kilobytes, I guess. Okay. <laughs> so, Keith, can you talk about that a little bit more? Because I, I just want to make sure we're talking about the same thing. But like, I, I often use event delegation in my event listeners, where I'll listen to like, for example, 
all clicks on the window or on the document and kind of filter out, was it on this element? Was it on that element to do different things? Is that what you're yeah. talking about? Or are you talking about something different? And if yeah, you no, want to talk about that, what are the performance implications? Yeah, so if you, say for example, you had a table with like a thousand rows, you could like iterate over every one of those 1,000 rows and add an event listener on a button inside one of those cells to click. Or, or a hover, um, or a hundred, yeah. uh, 10 things on each row, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. a million event listeners, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it quickly scales to ludicrous numbers where, you know, your memory footprint is going to go wild. Uh, you know, your, your fans are going to start wearing because you're just trying to, you know, add a sort button to a table or something. Great way to heat the house in the winter, though. Yeah. You know, we've, we've got a lot of stuff that's uh, binding to keyboard shortcuts or just any key event. And a lot of that needs the event delegation. Uh, so it's like a pattern where you can kind of add an event listener to a higher up element in the DOM. And then because of the way that the event emitters work inside the DOM, they will bubble up through various elements. So you can add an event listener for a click on the table. And every time someone clicks a button inside one of the table cells in the table row, that will eventually bubble up to the table. And then you just need to make sure to look at the event.current target property and you can filter against that. Um, but unfortunately, there's not really a super performant way to do that. That's why we have this delegated events library. Yeah. Dude, I, I think the de- de- event delegation is one of the easiest performance hacks to add to an app. Yeah, that, that was a huge uh, thing in jQuery, right? Everyone was doing event delegation in jQuery. It has great support for it out of the box. The the funny thing is when I when I talk to people about this, they're always surprised that that's actually better than attaching to individual elements. They're like, what do you mean listening to every click on the document? And so, I was like, no, no, like, trust me, like this is, it's better for memory than like- So here's, here's an example. I, I worked on a team where we had an app that, um, well, among the many things it did, it had- uh, tool tips when you hover over things and um, oh no and we had a lot of them because we we needed to tell yeah. people yeah often what what is this going to do when you click on it or you know or, or or whatever and i was perform i was profiling the app and noticed it took more time to tear down the old view than it did to create the new view and i was like how how is it harder to destroy what was just on the screen than it is to make the new thing that needs to be here like and so I looked into it, it as the tooltips. So rather than make the tooltips when the view gets created, I just added a global mouse over listener, one delegate listener for anything that matched the tooltip uh, selector. Mm-hmm. And I didn't create the tooltips until you actually hovered something that had a tooltip. And then we didn't pay the price for tooltips anymore. Like over, like just immediately we saw this massive performance increase in navigating between views as well as just initial page load. And so, yeah, event delegations is a silly, silly way to get insane performance increases. Back in the day, I used to have this argument. People would be so against having JavaScript on the page. And I'd be like, look, do you have an image on their page on your page? And they'd be like, yeah. Like, well, that's like 10 times as much as jQuery, for example. And so it's interesting to hear, I mean, in today's climate, it seems like people are putting megabytes of JavaScript on the page without any thought whatsoever. And then you're saying that, you know, you guys are being pretty aggressive, it sounds like, at just removing pretty simple shims for things like append and prepend. So why, why do you care? Like, what, where is this a problem for people that you want to save on, you know, 100 bytes on a prepend method or something? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it adds up over time. You know, you can end up shipping megabytes just in polyfills. Um, so I think it's important to, you know, our, our team is focused on on this exact goal of, of paring down these these kinds of tech debt because it's very important to, if you do it bit by bit, that, that 10 bytes now, yeah, that doesn't seem that important. But if we don't do it now, in a year's time, all of those 10 bytes here and there add up. And before you know it, we're serving you know, hundreds of kilobytes, potentially megabytes of polyfills that don't need to be served up. But if you were serving 100 kilobytes, like what's the harm in that? Like, does it affect the user experience at all? Is there anyone that doesn't have enough bandwidth? Is it like save you money somehow on CDNs? I mean, like, why do you care? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. So it's, it's faster for the user. They, they get the page faster. The page is interactive quicker. It's cheaper for bandwidth. I'm not entirely sure if that's an issue for GitHub. I don't see the receipts. Um, but <laughs> certainly for my own projects, I certainly aim, aim to you know, reduce bandwidth bills, which, which can add up. AJ, have you seen any of um, Adi Asmani's kind of analysis around like the relative performance impact of 100 kilobytes of JS versus 100 kilobytes of, say, JPEG? There's a whole slew of reasons why JavaScript is so markedly worse byte for byte for performance than any other piece of the stack, both in terms of kind of the render blocking and download blocking aspects of it, and also just the way browsers parse and handle JavaScript versus something like a JPEG or even CSS, which is really like relatively lightweight and cheap to, to process. So I hear what you're saying, like 100 kilobytes here or there is not a big deal. I see what AJ's saying. And I think if I was on a small side, like if I was a small company, like if I was not GitHub, mm-hmm. I would probably agree with AJ and be like, if Keith worked at not GitHub, like a small, I'd be like, Keith's crazy. He's <laughs> telling his boss how much money he's spending solving this. Not a problem, problem. But I think once you get to enterprise and you are world-class, I think solving these problems makes huge differences. And then can you explain why React is popular at all? Because that came out of an enterprise. Okay, so so like the most popular website in the world is Google.com, right? Google search. And they will fight over six bytes. They not not six <laughs> kilobytes. They'll fight over six bytes because on that, and when you have that much traffic, six bytes is huge. And so yeah. When you, it depends on your bandwidth, the number of people you're serving, where they're coming from. And even though 95% of your users have fast enough bandwidth that six bytes doesn't matter, I, I, I can't come up with a scenario where six bytes would matter, but six bytes over 10 years turns into um, you know 600 bytes or, 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 or a lot of bytes. <laughs> no, <laughs> 600 bytes. No, you guys are laughing, but I mean, I'm just saying like, those kind of things really, really matter. And we can trivialize it because if, if we all were just startups, it wouldn't matter. But when you're that big, it matters, I think. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. 
Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Keith, have you guys ever looked at using something like, um, at not necessarily this specific solution, but are you familiar with Polyfill.io and how it like just kind of dynamically serves only the polyfills you need? I was about to mention polyfill.io. I'm a huge fan of it. Um, it's, it's a fantastic service, isn't it? Uh, the fact that it like only serves the polyfills that you need uh, is great. We, we don't use it. I don't know if there's a specific reason why we don't use it, but I, I think we're kind of happy with how we have our system. Um, we're kind of happy because we only serve JavaScript to a subset of the latest browsers, right? So we're not so concerned with serving a dozen polyfills. But yeah, polyfold.io is a great service. The Financial Times, I, I did a small gig working there for a while. They're a really, really smart team. They maintain polyfold.io. I would fully recommend it. If you're a smaller company looking to, for this, you know, saving these 10 bytes here and there, and you think it's too much work to manually curate, curate this, polyfold.io is a perfect service for that. You know, it's drop-in. You just tell it what... Uh, functions you need, and it will just drop the polyfills in based on the browser that, that gets the JS. It's awesome. The Financial Times tech folks are just awesome web citizens too. They've done a lot of like really great open source projects, and I digress. Um, Keith, what sort of role do web components play in the new GitHub kind of interface? I did see that get talked about a little bit by, I think it was, it was Mislav who posted the, the original article. What, how does that kind of fit into the puzzle? Yeah, we're huge fans of uh, web components. We, I think we were one of the first um, sites to start implementing web components. Uh, we had a, like a, a V0 web component. When you look at a, a comment and you see that it says like posted four seconds ago and that starts incrementing, that was our first web component. Uh, it's called time ago or something. I don't know. But that, that was one of our first web components uh, using the very early draft of the web component spec. Um, but since then, we've we've come leaps and bounds. We've got probably a dozen or more web components. The majority of them are open sourced. They're a really fantastic way to kind of enhance the, uh, the library of DOM elements that you have uh, at your disposal. I'll try and find some of the good ones that we have. One of the great ones that we have, which we're actually working with standards bodies, we're, we're trying to push some of the standards bodies to take some of these components in because we think that they're very useful. Uh, one of them is uh, include fragment. So what this does is it uses, have you heard of Intersection Observer? It's this uh, super cool kind of observer class that you get in JavaScript. So when you're scrolling on a page, you can use the Intersection Observer to determine if you've scrolled to an element on the page rather than using like all these like scroll Y hacks. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how historically I used to have to like, you'd listen for scrolls and then you would kind of, you'd have to check if the element you wanted was in the viewport or not. Um, exactly. Yeah. Like client, and, was a client rectangle or something like that. So. Yeah, and you're like oh. writing your own like collision detection the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A uh, lot of these newer APIs are really, really, really helpful for this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and and inter intersection observer is one of those. Uh, it's super, super helpful. But we use that with this include fragment to kind of lazy load parts of the page. So whenever the intersection observer observer fires, we then go ahead and fetch a part of that document. So you might be on a page that's like got a hundred comments on it, and 
we might just use our include fragment element to like load some some of those comments and lazy load them in only when you scroll down to it. Uh, it's a really fantastic element that we use a lot on the on the site. And yeah, we're, we're talking with the W3C. I think we've raised an issue on their tracker and we, mm. we hope to get some of these elements in because we, we're really interested in, I mean, for one, it would be great if we don't have to uh, maintain that code and and serve that code to all of our browsers but we think it's a really useful tool um, and i think that's kind of where i th the real power of web components can lie is that if you write a web component in a, in a kind of way that's it's very general purpose then it kind of provides a paved path that can lead to some kind of standardization you know it gives a clear message to the standards bodies hey this is a really useful thing can we have this? And you know, it might get implemented. It's not completely alien for that to happen. That's how jQuery led the way to query selector and all these things, right? It's just that cycle all over again. Nice. Yeah, that's really. Um, and web components are a thing I haven't really played with all that much, but I've, I've noticed some, you know, some folks like GitHub and a couple of others starting to talk about them more. And it's definitely on my list of stuff to dig into yeah. more. Yeah, they're super awesome. Um, you should check out some of our web components. Uh, they're all on the github.com slash github uh, there's there's a ton of repositories there some of them are, are web components they'll they'll all end in component i think uh, if you search for component inside of our repositories they're, they're, you'll definitely find a few but yeah we've got our time ago component include fragment We're, you know we've got components for filtering for markdown i think so yeah there's a ton there that we we make heavy use of Fortunately, you only have 300 repositories to search through, so this is a piece of cake. Yeah, it's a breeze. <laughs> Not that active in open source, huh? Um. <laughs> yeah, we open source a ton of stuff through GitHub. Um, we also have a ton of projects through our personal accounts. Uh, you'll you'll just have to kind of find those, I guess. Uh, you know, go spelunking through the the minified code, and I'm sure you'll find some gems. It's pretty meta, man. <laughs> GitHub yeah. your code on GitHub. Uh, GitHub code on GitHub. My homepage is github.com slash github slash github. It's, uh, it's super meta. I have a few questions, and excuse me if we already talked about this because I had to attend to some things, but have we talked about accessibility at all? And I know, you know, if we're if we're trying to focus on just as Chris would like to say, more vanilla JavaScript, but are there any special accessibility insights that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So part of the usefulness of, of web components is that um, because they're such small focused modules, we can kind of spend the time to make sure that they're fully accessible uh, in, in their own kind of sandbox. And then as they kind of get included into the um, big picture of GitHub, they kind of ship being accessible, right? So we use the ARIA tags uh, so, for example, if you're, I think if you're reading notifications using a screen reader, every time you move to the next notification, you'll get an announcement uh, via your screen reader of the subject of the next notification. And that's like an ARIA live tag. Uh, so you can tell the screen reader to update the text as you're interacting with the page. One of the huge things that we do is there's an element called the details element. And it's like a super, it's, it's a native element. And it's it's uh, super accessible for screen readers, and it just all it does is it like it has a summary, and then it has a body, and when you click the summary, the body gets toggled, and so most people use it to sort of sh uh, show and hide uh, information 
in some pros. Um, but one of our developers found this awesome hack that you can kind of dress it up with a little bit of CSS and you've got a menu, right? And you can add a hover listener to click and you've got a hoverable menu and it's all fully accessible. So it's all, you know, works great with modern screen readers. And there's, you know, rather than writing JS to navigate menus, we have this thing baked right into the browser. Yeah, and I, um, you know, this is something that's obviously really important at NPM2 where I'm at, but I'd be curious, do you know any of the statistics as to, like, what different users with accessibility concerns, like, what their concerns might actually be? Because it wasn't, you know, your audience is obviously mostly developers, as it would be, like, for what I'm building. I'd be curious, again, like, from an accessibility standpoint, is it, you know, with the stuff that you're talking about using screen readers, um, that wouldn't necessarily be the audience that I would envision using GitHub. But I'm curious, are there any other people such as, like, do you use certain tools for testing for, like, colorblindness or just anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We have a design systems team that works to ensure every color that's used matches, like, the, I don't know the name of the specification, that there's there's some specification that like you have to make sure that you know color contrast uh, is sufficient for text to be readable for the majority of users and we have a design system team that work towards that there's some great tools i think in chrome in fact if you click on like one of the color pickers you get this kind of gradient line uh, to show you where a color is going to be accessible or not that's in uh, just the like regular dev tools i didn't even know about this yeah that just came out in the last like couple of months i think amy Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know about yeah. that. By the way, that spec is the uh, WCAG, I believe, because there's like yeah. AA and AAA kind of. Yeah, that's right. Tests. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not I'm not super up on all of the uh, accessibility WCAG stuff. WCAG too. I don't know if that's actually how you say it. I'm just WCAG, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we 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 have design systems team that that kind of deals with all the um the design aspects like colors from from a technical perspective on on the JavaScript side of things, we use uh, aria markup I don't think it just helps with screen readers, um, but that is, by and large, you know, that's where you're going to get the most benefit from that kind of stuff. Um, but it is important, you know. There, there are of course developers that use assistive technologies, and you know, we should cater to them. It's, it's kind of Definitely. our social responsibility. One hundred percent agree. And it's not just the traditional stuff. Like I have a friend who I feel like I've mentioned this before on other episodes uh, and he has like really bad tremors and it's painful. It just, it hurts. Like literally um, just makes me sad. Like, you know, sometimes watching people try to click on different buttons and the buttons aren't large enough. So it's just really important to keep in mind all that kind of stuff. Does he use a keyboard to move around Amy? Yeah, or? Yep, yeah. he does. Yeah, which I, from what I understand can be a really painful experience on a lot of websites just because yeah. they like break focus and yeah. don't, don't have, fo- you know, remove focus styles. It's like the, yeah. if you're doing that, just please, like, please stop. <laughs> you know, listeners of this show, there is no reason why you should ever remove a focus style from a, an interactive element. Just, you can make them look prettier, but do not take them away. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just um, spend 10 minutes pressing tab and going through the focus flow. It's, um, you know, that 10 minutes could really make or break the experience for someone who relies on those kind of shortcuts. Great question, Amy, by the way. I'm glad we're talking about accessibility. 
Yeah. Okay. I don't know. We're getting away from JavaScript, but um, I don't know. I feel like there's probably it's, a lot of good lessons learned there from. It's all related. It's yeah, great. it's all one big bundle of of front end technology. Uh, <laughs> it's all, it's all Honestly, like CSS can play a huge impact on accessibility, but these days most of the like this isn't accessible anymore issues I see are because people try and break what the browser gives you out of the box with JavaScript and they remove some of that native accessibility in the process. So yeah, it's definitely, for me, this is, I think it's super relevant. No yeah. I think um, like a, a small infraction that some websites choose to do, which we can kind of all relate to is like preventing you right clicking or, or preventing you pasting in a password field or something like <sighs> that kind of Worse. stuff. Just don't do it. Like why are you doing that? Oh, yeah. You don't know what technology someone's using on the other end of your site. You know, something like preventing you pasting into a password field where well, you're preventing me using a password manager, right? Simple stuff like that can, can really break users' flow. Uh, masks, the way that the entry masks manipulate how you can type and stuff is so frustrating. Yeah, yeah. And it's much more likely that if I copy and paste my account number from my bank site, I'm going to get it right yeah. than if yeah. I try to look at it. That's the weirdest one for me. The like yeah. you have to manually copy your your like routing number. We're like why? Why? So we could totally go off the rails for another few hours on this. I think. But um, uh, does anybody have any other questions, or should we move on to picks? Was that a pun? Because GitHub used Ruby on Rails. It was not. <laughs> I my puns are always unintentional, so it could have been a pun. It just wasn't on purpose. So I do need to say for the record that the uh, my my devil's advocating was not my opinion at all. You guys were a little bit too fooled by that act earlier. <laughs> really, <laughs> really, AJ O'Neill. <laughs> yes. Hey guys, let me tell you about Clubhouse. I swear, I've used every project management software there is out there, and I hated project management software. Now I have Clubhouse. Overall, it's simple and straightforward to use, but it has enough of the integrations and power features you need to get the job done without getting confusing. This means that I can use it and the non-technical members of my team can figure out what they need from it. It also makes it easy for me to zoom out and see what's going on overall before zooming back in and specifying more work that needs to be done or picking in the next task for me to tackle. They integrate with all the systems that you'd expect and have a REST API for, well, the rest. If you go to HTTPS clubhouse.io slash JSJabber, you can get two months free instead of the standard 14-day trial for any team size. Once again, that's HTTPS clubhouse.io slash JSJabber. All right. Awesome. Well, if anybody has anything else, uh, probably a good time to move on to picks. Does that work for everybody? Yeah. Can I get the uh, can I get the kind of lowdown on what picks are? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, Keith. Yeah, so so picks um, just like between one and three or so things that you think are awesome that you want people to know about. They can be dev related. They can be not dev related. I once picked Lacroix as an awesome drink, but a lot of times <laughs> it's like web tools and utilities and things like that. So um, we'll have you go last so you can hear how everybody else does them and you can kind of figure something out along the way if you want. Okay, okay, yeah, cool. All right, who wants to kick us off with picks this week? All right, Aaron, go for it, man. All right, so uh, two picks this week. Uh, this week, I uh, binge listened to a podcast by Rachel Maddow. This podcast is called Bagman, and it's a phenomenal historical podcast about uh, Richard Nixon's vice president. So it's not even about Nixon. It's about his vice president and... Ooh. Um, 
An insane story I'd never heard of about Spiro Agnew trying to fire the people who were investigating him and it has so many like ties to modern politics. It's, it was outrageous. <laughs> anyway, it's called Bagman. It was phenomenal. I'm going to recommend it on whatever your podcast medium is. Check it out. Now, the other thing I'm going to pick is Friday night. I got caught up in a, a storm of craziness and I couldn't, my brain wouldn't stop thinking about all weekend. So there's this fantastic internet personality slash programmer. She's both her name's Chloe Condon. She works at Microsoft. She's a DevRel. And she's, in my opinion, one of the most phenomenal like bloggers. And, and, and just her personality is so, so fun. But she had a really odd, I don't know if I should use the word scary. She had a really weird thing happen to her. So she wrote a blog post called What It's Like to Be a Woman on the Internet, which is an enhancement of her What It's Like to Be a Woman at a Tech Conference, which was a really famous blog. So I'm going to pick Chloe's latest blog came out today called what it's like to be a woman on the internet. And it points out how strange it is. And is she the one that that dude on Instagram posted the photo of the other day? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, so at the very, towards the end, she has a really solid call to arms. And it it was, it was to me, it said, but for the dudes who are out there who are angry and want to do something about it, I say this, call out the behavior when you see it happening. And so I loved the call to arms. And um, I think it is a problem that we all have to solve. For sure. So anyway, I'm in a, those are my two picks, Bagman and Chloe's what it's like to be a woman on the internet. Awesome. Joe, AJ, Amy. I have been doing a lot more of backend JavaScript lately and a lot of DevOps type stuff. So I have been drinking from the fire hose, all things Kubernetes. And there is a really good comic out there for anybody who is curious about this or is just kind of learning it. I will put a link to it in the show notes, but you can get it from cloud.google.com. It's really good. So that's going to be my only pick for today. Cool. Joe, you look like you have a pick on the brain. I do. I do. I got picks. Um, This is kind of topical. A week ago, as of this recording date, Uh, GitHub announced that uh, free, it now includes unlimited private repos, which I think is freaking awesome. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm going to save so many $7 per month. (laughs) I'm going to save exactly one of them. Yeah, Keith, please thank the people that be, whoever made that decision. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. I'm going to go out and twice a week, I'm going to buy my special swigs, which is going to be in my second pick. And I'm going to think of GitHub, or twice a month. I'm going to think of GitHub (laughs) while I drink my swig. So my second pick is is Swig, which is a Utah thing. If you ever pass through Utah, you must stop and get a Swig. It's this crazy thing that's been going wild in Utah in the last couple of years, which is these little soda shops that have all kinds of flavors. And you go up and you say, I want the endless summer. And it's Mountain Dew with pomegranate and grapefruit juice and lime juice in it. And it's so amazing. And angel tears. And angel tears. <laughs> <laughs> there's actually yeah there's uh i think it's it, it might be unicorn urine i'm not sure it's one or the other there's just so many magical drinks they they have some fantastic stuff they have seasonal ones and oh my gosh it's so good and i may or may not drink between 80 and 120 ounces of soda a day now because of it <laughs> <laughs> but i will say that that was a key contributor to being able to i've been uh, on a really strict diet since like August and I've lost like 25 pounds and just being able to drink this diet soda with a little bit of flavor in it has been like my one escape from the bland food I've been eating. 
<laughs> so that's my uh, that's my second pick. And then for a final pick, I'm going to pick uh, a blog I just saw today. I think it's fairly recent. Um, Dan Abramoff. Uh, no, it's back in December 28th, so it was over three weeks ago. He made this blog post called Things I Don't Know As of 2018. So this is just a couple weeks ago. And I love it because he's so vulnerable, say, putting forward all these things that he, it's like people probably assume I know these things or I think I should know these things, but I don't know these things. And at first it was like, oh, you don't know Unix and bash commands or low-level languages or the networking step. But then it's like, oh, um, I don't know uh, Flexbox, right? And it's, it's like, oh, I could totally identify with, you know, that happens to be one that I don't know and I feel like I should know. But there's so many things that I think I should know and yet I don't. And so sometimes I feel a little embarrassed about it to see somebody like Dan Abramov out there saying, here's all those, these basic things that I really just don't know. And it's okay to not know things. So it's a fantastic blog. Things I Don't Know as of 2018 by Dan Abramov. And the link will be in the show notes. And those are my picks. Cool. AJ. So I've got, I've got some good ones for you. Before the show, I was talking about how I went to my mom's for Christmas and she made me get some of my old crap out of the garage, which included my Super Nintendo and my Nintendo 64. I've developed an interest in getting more into hardware and electronics because software's boring. It's kind of all been done and uh, people are just making things more complicated. Only a couple guys over at GitHub are trying to keep things simple. And, and Chris, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the only one. Everyone so, else is an anarchist. But AJ, who's going to create the next great to-do list? <laughs> I don't know, but I don't want to be part of it. And so uh, anyway, I've been learning a lot of cool things. One of which is that isopropyl alcohol actually really is magic for electronics. The water, which you'd think you know, would rust things, actually helps collect some of the, the corruption corrosion, I mean, and then the alcohol will help evaporate the water away. So if you've got an old game system in your garage and it's been sitting there, most likely when you turn it on, you'll just get a black screen because the, some of the contacts will have corroded. So I went from black screen to rebooted every 30 seconds to fully running Super Nintendo and Nintendo 64 that I can play my Zeldas on again. And along that vein, I, like I said, I'm getting more into electronics. I was just cleaning something up, but um, starting to build things. All of the best kits from like SparkFun, and, and I totally think that you should support SparkFun and um, Adafruit and all that. But if you get a little price conscientious and you want like all the same stuff for between half and third the price, banggood.com has all of those electronics kits plus like a hundred more of really cool things um, that you can build on your own. And there, I mean, it's like $2 for shipping from China. Yeah, it'll take a week instead of having prime shipping, but you can get all sorts of fun things to kind of start to learn how to solder in and how to use different electrical components together. And then along with that, of course, you're going to need a soldering iron. I bought myself a Weller I love the way they look. They've got like this old-fashioned look to it. But if I went back and were buying again, I'd get either a Hako or an Extronic because you have more compatible tips that are cheaper in different styles that you can choose from. Weller is kind of like Apple in a sense. It's like its own thing. It's got its own style of tips. Like if you buy it, you have to buy all of the stuff that's yeah. just compatible with that. It looks really nice, but I don't know that it's that it's really, really worth it. So those are my picks for now, and I'll, I'll save some for next time. 
Awesome. Keith, what, uh, what do you have for us, man? Yeah. So I guess I should stick to the brand and say, you know, <laughs> GitHub's hiring. So my first pick would be github.com slash about slash careers and, you know, come work with me and do awesome stuff. My second pick is I've been getting into this podcast recently called, are you aware of the chef Heston Blumenthal? He's like a gastronomic chef but he does this podcast called Pod and Chips, which is a really weird and wonderful <laughs> thing about eating plastic and cooking rocks. So if you want to listen to that, I would recommend it. And I guess my third pick would be, if you're into kind of car crash telly and stuff, just Brexit in general. Uh, <laughs> nice segue. Where it's like everything has gone to hell in a handbasket i guess it's uh i don't know what's going on anymore we've we've you know did you before keith all of this so yeah it's a wonderful time to be alive what a what a time to be alive brexit's like a drug infused night you have to get down before you can get up i guess right uh, we're all living under the i hope you live in interesting times oh, yeah, right no, are, yeah um <laughs> awesome thank you keith um just a couple picks for me this week i have um uh, so every year, consultant Tom Whitwell posts this 52 things I learned in the year thing. Um, that usually comes like right on the right on the new year. So he just uh, uh, like a couple weeks ago posted 52 things I learned in 2018. And there's always some like really weird and phenomenally interesting kind of stuff in there. Um, like, for example, um, he learned that uh, in 2016, Singapore had a 135-day stretch where there wasn't a single crime reported. No house break-ins, no robberies, nothing. Just like a, like a three or four-month streak of no crime at all. So there's like lots of like really weird kind of like Jeopardy-style facts that he learned uh, for the year. So that's super, super awesome um, if you kind of like that sort of thing. The other thing for me, I just launched a new project. Uh, if you head over to learnvanillajs.com, um, one of the things I hear from people all the time when they're starting to get into either JavaScript in general, or they're trying to migrate away from like a platform specific thing into just understanding the web technologies better um, is I don't know where to start, or I'd like to work on a project to kind of like dive into this stuff a little bit, but I don't have any ideas. Um, and learnvanillajs.com is my attempt to try and fix that. So you can find a roadmap that documents what I think are a lot of the core skills people should know. And if you dig in on any one of them, it'll have some learning resource suggestions, some project ideas, including some starter templates you could just grab and start working on and, uh, and just some stuff like that. It's nothing too fancy, but just a way to kind of help people get going on this journey. Those are my picks for the week. Um, Keith, I really, really want to thank you for being on the, the episode this week. Um, this was awesome. GitHub is obviously a really important part of the web ecosystem. And uh, it's really cool to see your team being so progressive with the way that you, uh, you build your app. That was a deliberate pun this time, Amy. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that was really bad. I'm, uh, I, get, I get the dad jokes for days here. But yeah, Keith, thanks so much for being on the show. It was really great having you. And uh, esteemed panelists, thank you for, for joining us as well. Thanks, uh, cool. thanks for giving me the opportunity. Awesome. Yeah. So Keith, if people want to learn more about you personally, where should they go to find out more about you? Uh, yeah, they can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Keithamus, K-E-I-T-H-A-M-U-S. Uh, and if you want to learn more about the 
engineering effort that it was to remove jQuery, we actually have a GitHub engineering blog post. Uh, I guess that can go in the show notes too. Yeah, fantastic. If you just <laughs> drop that in the chat, we'll make sure it ends up down there. Yeah, yeah, sure. Cool. Awesome. 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 Well, nice thank you, everyone. And uh, have a wonderful uh, rest of your day. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Peace. Adios. Awesome. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. Wow.